Hi, it's Dave. Welcome. Today I'm joined by James Dama, and we are going to discuss、um, the latest Tesla FSD beta release notes, trying to get a sense of the improvements that Tesla is making with Tesla's、um, FSD beta. And then we're also going to talk about Andre Karpathy, Tesla's former head of AI, his recent interview on Lex Friedman, where he gives a bunch of interesting comments. I wanted to get James's、uh, insight and feedback on. James,、uh, welcome back on the show. How have you been? Been great. It's great, great. to see you again. Awesome, yeah.、Um, diving straight into it, Andre Karpathy. So、um, he was asked why he left Tesla as the former head of、uh, AI there, and he was saying he got kind of more into his managerial role. He wanted to be more technical, kind of learning and teaching as well,、um, and that he could come back to Tesla at a later point. What was kind of your kind of initial reaction when you heard that? Yeah, it's a pretty common story. I think I, I went through similar things myself at some jobs where. You,、uh, you know, if you're good at something, one way to like make a bigger contribution to the organization is you leverage yourself by, by essentially putting together a group and sharing expertise and providing guidance and that kind of stuff. Because you you become leveraged because you're you're making a bunch of other people sort of better at it. But the more you do that, the more you're not spending your time doing technical things. You're you spend all your time organizing a team. And in Andre's case, like apparently his team grew to a thousand people, which is Pretty amazing for somebody who doesn't like didn't start out as a as a as a manager. But yeah, at, at some point you just don't do technical stuff anymore. And if you really like doing technical stuff, I mean, you don't just miss it because you、uh, because you like doing it and you're not getting to do it. But you all at some point you start feeling rusty too because、um, being a technical expert means you have to keep, you have to constantly learn new stuff, right? Especially in a field like、uh, machine learning. So like. Yeah, I'm not at all surprised <laughs> that that、yeah. was his motivation for for moving on. And、yeah. it was great to hear him say that he liked working at Tesla and he'd go back too. I mean, you know, it'd be cool if he went back and all that kind of stuff. But the fact that he enjoyed the experience, like he didn't leave with a bad taste in his mouth. It wasn't like you know、yeah. he got worked to death or that you know the deadlines were killing him or something like that. It,、yeah. He just you know didn't get to do a lot of the stuff he really loves doing, and so he took a break. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, yeah, I was glad to hear he loves Tesla. He loves Elon. He loves the team.、Um, it makes it kind of more unlikely he'll go to like a competitor like Waymo or something. <laughs>、um, yeah, yeah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> see that going well? Yeah, just I, I, I suspect that philosophically, you know,、mm. his, you know, the way he thinks about the problem isn't consistent with the way,、um, like, if you were thinking about other. Companies doing it. I'd say Car- Carpathy was、uh, a really excellent fit for the job that he was doing at Tesla. Not just because, like, he had the technical chops to bring a lot of skill to it, but because, like, my read of his sort of, you know, expectations about like what the right way to to do a problem in in you know using neural networks in machine learning today is a lot more consistent with Tesla's approach to doing it than it is to. Most other entities out there, there are、sure. probably a few. But in one of the things that he emphasized a couple of times is, and and this is a very Carpathy take, is data really matters. Like having、mm-hmm. a lot of data and really massage. In fact, his his role at Tesla, like we tended to think of him as the guy who was inventing the neural networks. But the way he describes his job is, now he was like really his job was. To like figure out how to gather the data to make a really good training set, 
and that mm -hmm. they, you know, from that perspective, like the architecture and stuff, that was kind of secondary, not, not secondary in that it's not important, but secondary in that that was easier part. The hard part was building the training set. And so the data engine, like that was, that's a core concept that he worked on. It's something he really emphasizes. So where else is he going to go where, where you could build a data engine, right? I mean, Tesla is the only entity out there that's got a fleet that can build the kind of data that Carpathy seems to think is what you really need to do the problem, right? Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Um, so when asked about timeline for FSD, um, he made an interesting comment that um, Carpathy thought the problem was tractable. And um, mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you get out of that? So my, my kind of take was, that Karpathy is looking at this problem as it's solvable. He sees a kind of a, a clear path for it to be solved. It's just a matter of time. Um, he's unclear on, in terms of, you know, what's going to take longer or shorter, but he looks at the progress. He looks at the path ahead and he's like, yeah, this is a solved problem in the sense of it's, it's solvable, right? In time. So I mean, what's your take on this kind of comment from Karpathy? Uh, my, there were a number of things that Lex asked, uh, Carpathy, which are the kind of pointed questions to like get you to take a position between on one of two sides of something that is like a divisive topic in the space. And on all of those, Andre declined to, you know, get shoehorned into uh, the whole thing. Like, is uh, what about LiDAR? What about Sonar? <laughs> you know, those those kinds of questions. Yeah. And uh, and I like I feel like saying it's tractable is a way of saying, oh, it's going to work. Like it's totally the right way to do it without saying those other guys are wrong. <laughs> right? yeah. It's like, like, yeah, it's going to work. It's going to work. Right. Mm -hmm. it, I believe it's going to work. I think Andre must believe it's going to work and saying it's tractable is, you know, we're not done. And, uh, and it, you know, it's not totally clear exactly what it's going to take to get there. I mean, it's a, there's no existence proof. Nobody's done yeah. it yet. So we don't know what it looks like when it does work. So yeah. making precise predictions is tough, but you know, there's a lot of low hanging fruit. Um, we, we know how to make progress on all the things that we know are problems. And so it's a matter of turning crank and executing and getting there. Yeah. I thought Track. he, yeah, I, I thought he did make some, um, strong kind of comments against LIDAR and HD maps. So when asked about it, he was saying, um, I, I, well, he did say the more important question is whether you have a fleet or not, right? The data is the bigger yeah. question, but he was saying he thinks LIDAR is not needed and other people will probably drop it, you know, in reference to, you know, a lot of these other he said some, He thought some of them would probably drop it mm -hmm. and, you know, and I think it's true. I think there were, there are entities that will, I, I like his framing yeah. of of the question of like more sensors versus less sensors like look look at it generally whether we're talking about yeah. sonar lidar or some other sensors that are going on that there's a huge benefit to simplicity in the system like it's just it's much bigger than people think it is like you want to keep things as simple as possible because you already have really complicated problems yeah so so the question is, well, how many sensors do you need and so and the and so the way you start the problem is well you have to have cameras right? The, the road system is designed for cameras. Cameras are the one totally necessary component. Like there are no self-driving systems that don't have cameras. Like nobody's even thinking about it. Nobody's going to talk about it. It's a fool's errand. You're not going to take mm -hmm. the cameras up. So you got to have the cameras. So now for every other sensor that you add to the system after that, you ask yourself, how much complexity does it add for what benefit? What's the cost benefit trade-off? And if the answer, the way he put it was, like if it's not a big win, if adding that sensor is not a big win, then don't add it. 
right? It needs to be, a, it needs to be because any sensor you add is going to add a lot of complexity to the system, right? So if it's not a clear win, if you're not sure it's going to be there, you know, don't use the, don't use the sensor, which is yeah. obviously that's not what Tesla did. Tesla started out with sonar. They, they started out with radar. They started out with what I would have said was kind of the de, the de minimis sort of common sense, generally accepted set of tools that you'd, yeah. that you'd want to go into. And they actually, they ended up taking other sensors out because they had the experience of seeing the complexity and seeing the cost from the far end of having done it and then deciding that they would be better off not dealing with the complexity, the overhead, what Andre called the bloat, take those mm -hmm. things out and let's focus on what's really important, which is the cameras. Yeah. I mean, he mentioned that a few times, how like things like HD maps, whatever, all these other sensors dilute the mm -hmm. team's focus away from vision, makes things more mm -hmm. complex. And he kind of seems to really value this focus, laser focus on yeah. getting vision right. And it's, um, yeah, he, he made this comment that humans rely on vision, that vision sensor that we have as th the most mm -hmm. important sensor. And so um, it makes sense, you know, that Tesla's doubling down on the vision sensor, making sure they get that People right. Can, you know, humans, humans cannot drive without without being able to see. Like there are no blind people driving cars. Like that yeah. is absolutely critically necessary. You can delete almost every other sense from human beings and they can still drive a car. And you can take all their senses away and they can have pretty bad vision and still drive a car safely, right? Um, our road system is built for that. Like a very large fraction of people who drive cars on a daily basis, their vision is not great. It's not 2020, like correct, mm -hmm. it even corrected. It, it's nowhere near 2020. Some of them can't see very well at night. Some of them have other kinds of visual impairments, right? Like portions of their field view and they can still drive. Some people only have one, one camera instead of two, one eye, mm. working eye, and they, and they can drive. Our system is basically the road system, the, the world that, that cars operate in is overwhelmingly built to depend on vision and nothing else is necessary, right? So you absolutely have to have vision. And there's nothing else that is absolutely necessary. So the, you know, the, the minimum set of things that you can do to be successful is to do the cameras. And now, now if every other thing that you add to the pro program is going to make your vision worse, because it's going to take, it's, you know, it's going to take, I think there's, it's easy to have this sort of mistaken impression that, oh, we can just add some more people and they'll work on that part and it won't negatively impact the vision, but that's not how it ever works. Right. In any complex interdependent technical development program, everything interacts with everything else. And so there isn't anything that you can add to the system that doesn't in some part detract from all of the other things. Right. Whether you're taking focus away or you're taking the best people away or you're shifting emphasis or budget or whatever the deal is, just making an organization bigger makes the product worse. Yeah. Right. You always like if you doing cutting edge development a really important product, you always want to do your development with the smallest possible team of the best possible people. That's what yeah. gets you good results quickly. Yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah, it's interesting how like Tesla seems like to be pretty much the only major um, autonomous driving player that's doubling down on vision, like the way they're doing it. Like you have a lot of these other players that that are using multi, you know, modal sensors. So even like Mobileye, they were, you know, on vision, but now they're, they're adding kind of, I think one of their suits has LiDAR. Um, and same thing with like, you know, you have Cruise and Waymo's LiDAR. And, and so you have Tesla, and I think that's one of the kind of unique angles from 
five years ago when they kind of Andre Karpati first came is they haven't veered from that kind of like vision of vision is going to make it happen. You know, um, he noted also like, um, he's been there five years and when he first got there, there were barely just like two people coding, like, you know, coding neural nets or something. Yeah, and like now they that. had this like world-class team. Under the, their their, uh, their yeah. training machine was under their desk. Exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. Which is like, uh, that's a pretty interesting insight into the status at that. Yeah. You know, that was 2017, I guess, when he yeah. started something like that. Exactly. And he's talking about, he talked about uh, software 2.0 moving from like kind of heuristic C++ code to neural nets. But if you think about it, this five-year progress that Tesla has done over, is, is create, is immense. Like from what, yeah. from where they were five years ago to now and how much they've built up in terms of team and expertise, data, and it's, they're doing it in the real world for people to see it. You know, you can actually drive the FSC beta car right now. Mm -hmm. It's like tremendous. And I think the the most bullish thing I got from that that part was, Tesla, in order to do, to get where they've gotten in the short amount of time, they've had to learn how to move quickly. And the, the organization itself um, has has that in, in it, meaning the DNA is move quickly, innovate, push hard. And that's probably one of the most bullish kind of signs for the future for Tesla's FSD program is they've got that, you know, um, move fast and they've proven it over the past five years. I and mean, what's your kind of take on some of this stuff? Yeah, I agree. It, uh, like I stopped working in corporations because of all of the stuff that Andre says that Tesla tries to get out of the, you know, I, it's, I mean, people who, who measure their, not just their job satisfaction, but their progress, like whether they're accomplishing any, anything by like results at the end of the day, they all hate bureaucracy, like everything that makes a system bigger. There are reasons to have that in certain types of organizations, right? But if you can find a way to, to do what you want to do without having all of that overhead, then you can, you can just focus on making a really good product without, you know, all, all of the sideshow stuff that goes on. And it's, it's crazy frustrating. And it's like, there are places where, you know, when I started, uh, if I wanted to design a printed circuit board, I could like, you know, I could pick the vendor, I could pick out all the components, I could, you know, get all the stuff ordered or ask somebody the next, and then five years later, you know, if I want to, to use a slightly different, you know, transistor of some kind on a board, I put in a requisition to the purchasing department. And three weeks later, they tell me if I can have it. I'm not even kidding. Like I've been through this yeah. a bunch of times. Organizations get big, they get slow. They frequently have very, you know, good internal rationalizations for why they need to be slow. Like every single time you have something blow up, something goes bad, some customer gets embarrassed, some you, you know, you get some significant failure, companies add a process and then they never delete it again, right? Mm -hmm. And and five years later, the guy who's sitting on that process, you know, he wants to go home and play with his kids, <laughs> you know? He's just, yeah. you know, shortening one stack of paper and filling another stack of paper. I mean, organizations get slow because you add more people, more and more of the people that you add are not in a hurry. Yeah, They're there for the paycheck, right? And so it it's hard to, it is it is stunning that Tesla is as big as it is. And, you know, it, they're, it's pretty impressive how little they spend on R&D and how small yeah. their teams are really when you think about it. But even so, operating at that scale 
and not having a lot of bureaucracy or having having a guy who, like Andre said, who has the big hammer, who comes in and says, we don't need all that stuff. Just get rid of it. Focus on what's important, you know, simplify, yeah. simplify. Like yeah. that's super refreshing as a, as a guy who's like sweltered under bureaucracy before to like imagine yeah. working in an environment like that. Yeah. My, my theory is um, when you get a big organization going, most people, they would rather kind of have lots of meetings and hang out with people. They like the relational type of, you know, it's not getting things done per se. It's like people have a lot of relational needs. You know, they want to feel part of something inclusive. They want their voice to be heard, all this stuff. And I think if left alone, you get majority of people to set this culture where like, I think Elon was commenting, there's like 10 managers. He thinks like, he feels like to one engineer at Twitter mm -hmm. or something, you get this culture of like everyone's voice is heard and everyone has a, a scene in the meeting and you have all these meetings. Very collegial. Um, yeah. Exactly. Versus mm -hmm. this hardcore, get it done. Kind of the, I don't know, this urgency of, of the relational doesn't, that's secondary. It doesn't really matter. We've got to get this done. Um, and it seems like Tesla has, has or Elon especially has captured that and has somehow, you know, pushed maybe with that hammer or something, but pushed hard enough where, you know, the whole team understands that, you know, that the culture isn't this, you know, let's waste time by, you know, hanging out and have meetings all day, but it's really one of uh, getting things done. And that's, that was refreshing definitely to hear, I think, um, with Karpathy too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, one other thing. Um, so, Karpathy had a lot of respect for Elon. He mentioned a few times that um, Elon moves fast. He makes big moves. Um, he's a smart guy with a big hammer. He knows how to kind of steer the organization away from entropy. Um, also that he drives FSC a lot. I thought that was interesting, almost daily. Like, that yeah, was you know, note. I was thinking when I heard that, like, I wonder how many CEOs of other companies that are involved that like if you asked them like how many hours a day do you drive the product do you use it do you do like mm -hmm. i would bet that you know if you ask uh if you went if you ask the ceo of ford or the ceo of gm right or even if yeah you went and asked kyle vote you know who's uh, mm -hmm. runs uh cruise right like you know how many day how many hours a day do you spend you know in the car experiencing and seeing what it's doing but his answer is probably not going to be that many right i bet he doesn't spend a lot of hours sitting in the back of a cruise car cruising around town getting a sense for for how things are working and you know you know the ceos of of ford and and uh, and like i wouldn't be surprised if they've never used the product or they've used it twice in demos right where the engineer showed them what was going on yeah it's interesting um yeah that was one of my kind of fears that elon is, was getting so busy that mm -hmm. like how, how how much does he really have time to drive fsd beta you know like mm -hmm. to really test it out but it's good to know that he actually is making a big priority um yeah and it shows that it's a priority i mean like yeah. i really believe it's a priority for tesla to execute well yeah. on this like however long it takes like this is important it's going to be a huge lever for the product it's going to be one of the major contributions that tesla makes to improving the world is yeah. getting this product out there and getting it going and knowing that he's not getting sucked into any of the, you know, I mean, when you're the CEO, you get called into like every, every drama that happens at the, at the company. The fact that he's able to maintain and focus on this, I feel like is a really good sign. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think Twitter is going to be distracting to him? Like, it seems like to turn around that type of organization, I mean, it's 7,500 people, you know, it's, it's 
a lot of messiness. It's not like a clean organization. Either. I mean, there's so much drama and controversy, right? You make one change, you have all this outrage. I'm sure people are texting them like crazy, just like all this stuff. It's like, how do you, how do you make time for other stuff? It's, I mean, I would imagine Elon would want to spend like one day a week on Twitter or something, but I don't know how he can just limit himself to that. It just seems like it I would- I don't know how he does yeah. what he does now. Right. Like I can't personally, I can't imagine being the CEO of one large organization. Like, I don't think I could do 10% of the job of running SpaceX. Like, you know, I, I I don't think I'm up to it. So like, I, apparently I have no idea what the man's limits are. You know, know, maybe he's got 50% spare capacity now that he's not sleeping on the factory floor. (laughs) It's, it's frankly, it's amazing. Yeah. 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 That's true. Um, Last topic on Karpathy. So Karpathy um, made some comments on AGI or artificial general intelligence. And I thought it was interesting. He was saying one route could be kind of this internet kind of path, right? A lot of people are taking online um, using the data that people have there. Another path is kind of more this physical world path where you have robots like Optimus interacting with humans in the physical world. Um, and he, he was saying how it's uncertain, you know, how we'll get AGI, but um, he thinks that Optimus is the harder but more certain path um, to AGI. Um, I, it's, and he, he kind of almost, I want to say he didn't say it outright, but it felt like he insinuated that um, Tesla is kind of in the running for, you know, this event, the, in terms of the, the major players, in terms of who can, contribute significantly toward AGI. Um, it seems like in Karpathy's mind that Tesla is definitely one of those players. They're taking a different route. It's a physical, like, you know, a robot route that he thinks is a legitimate route, but, and it might not get there first. He's saying it could be the internet route, but it's just interesting how he frames that problem. What I'm curious, I wanted to ask you, how are you viewing AGI? Do you think artificial general intelligence can be reached through the internet kind of data route only or do you think there does need to be a physical kind of robot or interactions I with the am world? not like so i've heard there it's this the embodiment question right mm-hmm. there um since way before neural networks took off like it, it there's been a camp in the artificial intelligence uh space that really believed embodiment was was important and that we're working on trying to come up with ways to do embodiment and so embodiment is this idea that you that that uh, that interacting with the world through a physical presence is either, uh, uh, helpful or necessary. Like there are camps that believe like it's, it's bare bottom necessary. Like there's no other way to do it. And there are camps that believe it's useful. It'll be faster. Right. But that you could do it other ways. And personally, I'm in neither of those camps. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I do not believe, and I believe embodiment could be useful, like depending on the approach that you take, but AGI, I'm always a little uncomfortable with topic with uh, talking mm-hmm. about AGI because it's really poorly defined, yeah. like the broadest in the broadest sense of the, what the term means, like we're not going to make general intelligences because you probably truly general intelligence probably isn't possible. Like every kind of intelligence is going to be specialized to some extent. A lot of people, when they talk about AGI, what they mean is something that's general in the same way a human is general. In other words, sort of, it's good at the same things humans are good at, which is a pretty good benchmark because the things we care about are the things we do, right? And we're impressed by things that can do the stuff that we can do, but can do it better. So then you have to ask the question, you know, people will say like a common definition of AGI is 
it does everything humans can do and it does it better. Like super intelligence is being able to do all the stuff that humans do and being able to do it better than, than humans do. But that, that sort of Im imagines us a, a form of being, which is similar to a human being. Like it, it, uh, you know, human beings, we're individuals and each individual has a bunch of different capabilities and we're all more or less the same. We, we all have more or less. I mean, some of us are better at some things and, than others and that kind of stuff. There's a mix. But for the most part, human beings are pretty, pretty uh, similar. You know, you can't take a human being and divide them up into like 10 different modules that are just specialized on different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. um, and if you could do something like that, you might find that you could make a better composer or you could make a better cook or you could make a better companion or, you know, all the different things you might want to be good at as a human being. That if we made something that was specialized to that, and if you had an infrastructure so you could switch between these specialized agents, that that might actually be better. And in fact, like that, this idea is compelling enough that Marvin Minsky is kind of famous for saying, well, that's what humans are. They're, the, they're a collection of different specialized modules. Um, that, you know, that opinion, that, that theory isn't as in favor as it used as it used to be, but it's a nice framework for kind of understanding this. Like when we build AIs, they don't they don't need to operate on the same time frame that we do. Like when 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 Facebook or Google builds an AI, like it'll when it holds a conversation, it's not one on one with a person. It'll be talking to ten thousand people at the same time, just like their you know Google search does. So 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 the place I'm going with this is like AIs they're only going to be like us to the extent that we try to make them like us or that we want to, or there's value in making them like us. The natural progression for AI as it increases its capabilities, in my opinion, is going to be that it'll get it like it'll, it'll play to the strengths of machines and it won't, you know, and at some point those will, those will be very complementary to what humans do and supplementary, like they'll be able to do the kinds of things that we do, but it's not necessary to create value to do it the same way a human, a human being does, right? Like uh, you can do it other ways that are that are just as useful. And and I think the natural progression, like if, if, if the point of AGI is to get the best utility out of AI, the short path to getting there and the natural path to getting there is not going to be trying to create things that are like people. I think we will create things that are like people because it's an interesting technical challenge. It's an easy thing to understand and there will be utility in doing those kinds of things. But I think very few of the powerful systems in the world will be doing that. Like we won't have an AGI weatherman, right? We got a supercomputer <laughs> that simulates the weather. That's a better way to do it, right? That's a machine way of doing a thing that you that you might want you know, a human to do. So, and it creates value. And I think we'll do that kind of stuff. I think we have, we talk about AGI because it's an interesting and useful benchmark to talk broadly about the capabilities of AI. Like once you start being able to do something better than a human does, you start to create a kind of economic value that isn't accessible otherwise. I mean, it's one thing to be able to do math really fast, but it's another thing to be able to do to do novel math that no human being can do and solve grand challenges and whatnot, right? So there, there are advantages to crossing these superhuman thresholds and that makes that a useful benchmark to talk about, but it's not, you know, it's just that it's a talking point. Like we, and there are people who specifically say they're working like John Carmack recently said, he wants to work on AGI, you know, specifically as a problem. Um, I do think there are lots of different ways. Like yeah. there's almost an uncountable number of ways to build really great, useful 
uh, AI um, from different from different aspects and which ones uh, the way it ends up getting done will be a little, some of it will be coincidence and some of it will be path dependency. Like we'll build on things that we, that have worked well for us before. Uh, some of it will be, um, serendipity and some of it will be very intentional. Right. But it's for the most part, it's not going to be people sitting down, drawing a diagram and saying, this is exactly how to do it. And now we just need to do these different parts because we didn't know how to do it. And there's, and there isn't like one agent which is going to solve all the economic needs that, that we want it to do. So that said, I think robots is a pretty powerful way to develop a lot of super important capabilities that will be useful to all different kinds of artificial intelligences that we want to have in the world. And that that is a major contributor to AI. Now, Tesla, it's pretty likely that as we make progress towards AI, AGI, that one of the things that we're going to find is that scale matters and having lots of data matters, especially in the early days. Like most technical things, like the first few times you do them, they take more resources. And then after a while you get better and it takes less resources. You can do it faster and better. But the first, you know, yeah. the first attempts take more resources. And I think Tesla is very likely in the next few years to be one of the most, one of the best resourced entities on the planet. Like, you know, you a few years ago, you would have said, if we talk about resources, you're going to talk about hyperscalers, um, Microsoft, uh, Google, uh, you know, made people who have really, really big data centers and who have a dedicated group of people who are working on this problem. If you thought that like technical chops were the most, you might have looked at, say, DeepMind or, or OpenAI, who have fewer resources, but in certain respects, they have better talent. As things keep going, the resource part of it is going to become more important for the reason that Carpathy said, because scaling is going to matter. We're, we're more likely to get there quickly if we pick simple, powerful techniques that scale well. And to scale well, that means you need a lot of computers. So whether it's Tesla going out and buying a lot more GPU clusters for training or whether they get Dojo working and all of a sudden they have, you know, 100,000 GPUs worth of capacity, that kind of resource, plus people who have been working on real world AI problems, those are going to be super important capabilities. And yeah, they will absolutely put Tesla in the running for being one of the entities that that brings us home. Sure. Um, all right. So I want to I segue off of this, what you're talking about here. So we've got this real kind of physical world and you have Tesla, you know, starting out with their cars, now trying to get into robots, um, getting a ton of data because you have video, which is just, you know, massive amounts of, of data. Um, and they seem to, at least Elon seems to think that Tesla's in the lead or, you know, the, the leader in the, of real world AI. I'm curious as Tesla kind of, continues down that path and you, you you note that you know the humanoid form is is one type of form you know it's 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 not the only form for robots or ai um do you think though tesla it's just the will, best one <laughs> yeah it's the best let's say generalized like form yeah. in our in our world because so much stuff is in, built for in a human the humanoid form where, right? yeah, exactly. the, where we measure economics by human values a human form is its best form because of its generality. Yeah. Exactly. So, but the question is, as Tesla makes this, you know, generalized humanoid, humanoid body, they're going to learn a lot of stuff where they could make a lot of different specialized 
robots for specialized mm-hmm. tasks that do a much better job than, let's say, a generalized humanoid robot in doing those tasks. Do you think it's wise for Tesla to veer off and in some senses to build those specialized robots as well? Or do you think they should just double down and just focus only on Optimus as their kind of main robot and just kind of ignore, you know, other forms of robots? Um, like my metaphor for this would be like, look at the cars, like, you know, Tesla's not doing a van right now because there's a lot more value in making more Model Ys right now. And you have to build a lot of Model Ys before it makes a lot of sense to build a van to like to try to go after those those other things. I mean, you know, vehicles to a first approximation, you can, you know, there are special cases, but you know, you know, when there were only Model S's, people just bought Model S's and they were pretty happy with it. And then the Model X came out and all of a sudden, like there's a camp of people who now they want to do the Model X. The three shows up and now a lot of people who would have bought a Model S, well, now they're buying a Model 3 because it fits, right? But they could have used a Model S. Like it's not as good. It costs more. Maybe it's too big. Maybe there, you know, there are other things about it that you, that you don't like. You know, the robots, having one really general purpose thing that you can build at scale, like I think that really is the way to, to, to start out. And that is the emphasis you get. And at some point you add variety because the relative disadvantages of reducing the scale that you build your gen, your first one at in order to, you know, have something that's more optimized. Like eventually you get to a point where it starts to make sense to make the second one, the third one, the fourth one. And like the cars, I think that happens after you get to a pretty big, to pretty high scale. Like, so my guess is that like Tesla, you know, after they're, when they're building a million op, optimize, <laughs> then, <laughs> then maybe it's it's time to make a, a you know some variant that's specialized for some other kind of thing right but mm. you know as long as there's lots of demands for for optimus and you can satisfy that and scale up and drive the cost down and gather more experience and like you know put all of your wood behind one arrowhead to make fast progress like i think that's a good way to go personally right yeah. i think that's yeah. traffic now uh you know there are companies that will find it more profitable at the individual level to at the individual unit level to like make lots of different ones right um that are more specialized to some particular task but i think if what you want to do is like bring is create a revolutionary product at real scale that makes a really big difference in the world then you have to put a lot of effort into getting to scale like i think that's mm. really important and you and once you get to scale then you start thinking about other things but getting yeah. to scale is much harder to do on 10 products than it is on one yeah that makes sense i mean just focus double down on you know the core product get to scale and then from there you know you can satisfy maybe other segments if you're if you want to um um karpati um last kind of comment like when I was listening to this interview on Lex Friedman, it kind of struck me like every time I hear Karpathy speak, he, he's very um, articulate. You know, he's like, he he explains things kind of clearly, um, level-headed. And, you know, I kind of miss him as part of, you know, the Tesla AI team and all that. I wonder if like Tesla could do something where they could hire him as like their AI am- ambassador or spokesperson or something, you know, mm-hmm. someone to, to interface with, I don't know the public or they the world or something. The yeah, that, that that's the only thing. <laughs> Tesla's so hardcore, just 
getting things done. That seems like a extraneous, you know, kind of role of it. Yeah, it's interesting. There are a lot of different ways of looking at like, you know, Tesla's, um, you know, what public facing stuff. Yeah. And one that I like, one framework that I like to use for thinking about this stuff is like, you know, words are just words and actions matter and results are what count. So we're going to do our speaking through the results that we get. Right. And because, you know, talk is just talk. Right. Like, mm -hmm. no. And we see this because you see all of these completely worthless or actually counterproductive companies that have incredibly good PR. Right. And they do a really great job of selling them, of, of selling them, themselves. Right. Whereas, you know, if you actually look at the results of what companies do, like what is really important, it, you know, it can be harder to see what's going on. So I, you know, there's a component of that. Yeah, we're just going to do what we do. And then you can look at the results. And like, if you like the car, buy the car, recommend the car to your friends, you know, or if you, you know, if you, if you like the price point of our solar system and you think the service is good, then, then buy the solar system and recommend it to your friends, right? Like that, that should be it, right? That should be how you, you evaluate us, not on whether or not, we say all the right things in a television ad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. All right, uh, James. So I want to uh, segue into a part two of our kind of talk here. So first part, I wanted to just give kind of broad strokes on um, Karpathy's interview, but also kind of these more general topics. But this part two, I want to dive into um, the specific release notes for Tesla's upcoming um, FSD beta version 10.69.3. And you noted on Twitter that they had some big uh, improvements. So I wanted to go through this um, point by point. There are 15 different points here. Um, it's a little technical for those who, who fade off this. Don't worry, no problem. <laughs> but those for those who are into this technical stuff, this is a good chance, I think, to um, get an interpretation, you know, layman's interpretation on uh, what some of this stuff means. So um, let's go to the first um, release note point here. So Tesla says they've upgraded the object detection network to photon count video streams and retrained all parameters with the latest auto labeled data sets with a special emphasis on low visibility scenarios. All right, can you explain kind of what's going on here? Yeah, so um, the photon count video, the when they started uh, doing this stuff, they were taking the cam the cameras were feeding an onboard uh, image processor that produces like this condensed kind of cleaned up signal that the neural networks work on. And then over time, they started discovering that there was, they were losing some information in that process that might be useful to the neural network. And so they switched to taking the raw camera data as it comes off the camera. And instead of having the signal processor clean it up and compress it and do things that, that initially seem like they're really valuable, they, they stopped doing that. They just took the raw data in. And then because the, the content of the data changes, you need to retrain your neural network. I mean, first of all, you're, you have different data. And so you retrain. But now there's different strengths and weaknesses in the data. Like, for instance, it might be noisier than it was before. It might have a different frequency re response. The colors might be different. And so you have to deal with all that kind of stuff. So uh, they first started talking about this like six or nine months ago, where they started going to photon count or essentially the raw camera inputs. So one of the things you get from the raw camera inputs is it has higher dynamic range. And dynamic range is really useful in situations where there's, you know, 
there's small amounts of detail that that pre-processing the, the the video might cost you, which turn out to be really valuable to understand what's going on. So for instance, say you're driving in fog, right? Uh, so you're driving in fog, it's not dark fog, it's daytime, but there's fog and you're trying to make out the, the outline of a car in the distance. Well, most of what you see is fog. And then the outline of the car is slight different, slight variations in the whiteness of the fog as you go. And so that's an example of the kind of thing that like, it, you know, after you process the image, the car's gone, right? And if you take the raw stuff in, then you can do that. And so they specifically called out low visibility situations here, which is why I, I mentioned that. They're, there are low visibility scenarios where either, you know, noise filtering is costing you detail that could be useful to the neural network. Like if your neural network's big enough, if it's got enough data, then, you know, it can see through the noise and it can pull out the details that it, that it needs. And so essentially moving away from the compressed stuff to the photon count videos, it, it, it indicates that they've, like the neural network's doing well enough that, that now they have to go further, right? It's, it, it indicates a certain level of maturity. Like to get better, we need to get closer to the raw data. And uh, and so they're doing that with another network. So they've been doing this with some other networks in the card. This is a new network that they added it to. One of the things I thought was interesting about this note is the amount. So essentially they, you know, they improve the architecture. So they change the architecture when they switch this. The architecture of the neural net is like how many neurons you have and how they're connected together. Uh, and then they... Uh, they retrained it. Uh, so you retrain it on all new data in order to do this stuff from scratch with a lot of additional data. And then of course, and at the end of the day, they get they get better numbers out of the thing. So it's a pretty significant amount of work to take what is one of the major kind of central critical capabilities of your system, this object detection network. It has hundreds of different outputs that the, that the, that the system uses in many different ways. So like, you know, building a replacement for that which is superior on all of those things in all the different situations is a, is a, right. is a big piece of work. And it suggests that they're probably getting pretty substantial because it wouldn't be worth doing if you weren't getting going to get a big payoff. Right. So are these two, so you, you talked about the second kind of release note, improved architecture for better accuracy and latency, 20% lower velocity error of crossing vehicles and improved VRU precision by 20%. So are these connected? Is it the photon count update is, is connected to this architecture kind of improvement and then yeah, so the results. When, they, when you do the photon count update, when you switch from the pre-processed video to the raw video, you have a bunch more information, but you also have a bunch more stuff you don't want. So you have to add a lot of capability. Like the no neural network needs more data to learn, oh, this is noise and I can ignore it, right? Like not because previously the ISP might've been taking noise out. And so it, the neural network didn't have to learn to do that itself all the stuff that the ISP was doing that was creating value. Now the neural network has to learn to do all that stuff for itself, right? But now there's all this other data also coming in. And to take advantage of that, you also need more capability. Because like right. to the extent that, 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 uh, that your neural network was properly sized previously, now it needs to be bigger because you're asking it to do more and you're giving it more data, right? So all this stuff involves getting bigger. Now, sometimes when you get bigger, you just scale up, although that's kind of uncommon. Usually when you get bigger, there are certain parts of the network that you want to make bigger. And there might be parts that you can make smaller because like 
they were doing something, they were dealing with something that was a side effect of what the ISP output was, and now you don't need that, right? So, so essentially the network architecture changes. Some parts get bigger, some parts get smaller. Now you've got a new architecture and you have all new data, right? Because now you're using the photon count data. You're not using the pre-process data. So, so you retrain everything. And then the numbers they're giving us at the output, like, you know, lower, lower velocity error of crossing vehicles by 20% and improve mm -hmm. VRU. Those are a couple of examples of concrete benefits that they're getting from having done all of this work. Got it. Okay. So when you're saying that, okay, they upgraded the object detection network to photo count video stream. So are we, are they, did they replace all of the, the video data that's feeding into this object network with photo, um, count Photon videos? Count. Yeah. Photon right. count videos. Okay. So, I mean, that seems like a pretty major, because I'm assuming these are new videos, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So they're having to feed, basically retrain the whole yeah, we, network. We've right? mentioned this before, and I think we've talked about this a couple of times, but, but there's, there's this perception, which is erroneous that, that Tesla's got like this giant pool of data that they're just adding and adding to, you know, and that it's the size of the pool that matters. The power of the fleet is your ability to like throw all that away, change your mind about how you're doing stuff and get and regather everything that you need. Or to, I think the way that it was described on AI day too, is they have a lot of turnover. Like, you know, they have this mm -hmm. big cache of data and some of it's useful and some of it is less useful. And they constantly have lots of new stuff going in and they have this continuous process where they decide what's important like, and what's not important. And so they toss old stuff out, they bring new stuff in. So when they want to do an architectural change, like, oh, you know, we've been collecting all this ISP data and now we decided that photon counts are really important. We need photon count data. Well, they've got this giant fleet. They know what kind, they have all the triggers that they used in the past to gather yeah. that. They can yeah. resurrect those triggers, the ones that are important, push them back out to the fleet. Okay, now give us the photon versions, right? And pull all that data in and, you know, it's the, it's the, searching and gathering capacity of that fleet, which is the power of it. It's not how much data you've collected in the past. Got it. And it's probably faster. And so faster. this is an example of something that they can do because they have that fleet, yeah. right? You know, if you're Waymo and all your training is coming off of this network that you have, like, well, I don't know that that's what Waymo does, but you know, if you've gathered a ton of data and that repository of data is what you train on, well, you better have been right <laughs> back when you decided what you were going to gather, right? Because yeah. now you're stuck with it. Yeah. I mean, the, the, also the larger the fleet you have, so as Tesla's fleet grows, they're able to get that data faster, maybe more, you know, diversity yeah. of cases. Yeah, yeah, um, interesting. Yeah. I mean, this photon count video, um, stream thing seems like a, a big step where, you know, um, there's potentially, um, the, they're able to detect things that they weren't able to detect, especially if they're saying low light, yeah. you know, low visibility scenarios. Right. So do you think this is just the beginning of kind of the realized improvements by switching over photon count, um, that they'll be able to accrue some additional benefits as they kind of tweak things? Uh, okay. So it'll keep paying dividends. Um, there will be things that in the future that they decide that they want to do that they can do because now they're on photon video that might not have worked you know, previously when they weren't, but switching from, you know, ISP post-processed video to photon count video, it's mainly about getting data that the ISP would have denied to you. The ISP is kind of a filter. Mm -hmm. And the reason you put it in there is because you want it to filter out stuff that's noisy and distracting that you don't want to see. But the ISP is imperfect. It also takes out data that you do want to see. 
right? And so, but taking the ISP out, it makes a neural network more complicated because now the New York the neural network has to do what the ISP was doing in addition to everything else you wanted to do. So it adds complexity to your system, right? But the value you get for that is that you're getting everything the camera can gather, like the photon count video, that's reality as the camera experiences it totally unfiltered, like you're getting everything in there. If you let the neural network do the filtering, then the neural network can decide what's important and what's not important, right? It learns to do that, as opposed to an ISP, which is this hard-coded thing that was, mm -hmm. you know, that was probably designed with priorities that are not a perfect match to what the neural network needs to do. Mm -hmm. Got it. All right. Uh, third uh, release note point says converted the VRU vulnerable road user velocity network to a two-stage network, which reduced latency and improved crossing pedestrian velocity error by 6%. Um, and then they say the fourth uh, release point is converted the non-VRU attributes network to a two-stage network, which reduced latency, reduced incorrect lane assignment of crossing vehicles by 45%, and reduced incorrect parked predictions by 15%. All right, so what's going on here? What is this two-stage network? You know, what does it mean to convert. Um, yeah, so the, two, the term two-stage gets used a couple of different ways, and it's not totally clear um, which, you know, I mean, two-stage, the, the the core meaning is kind of obvious, like you can't, you have two stages to a neural network, you produce some intermediate product, and then you run it through another stage of neural network to produce whatever the final product is. So there are various reasons you might want to have two stages, like one reason uh, that, that you can, uh, there's an interesting version of a two-stage network where um, the first stage does what the basic neural network does, which is it makes a guess about what about what the right answer is that you're asking the, the neural, like, is this a pedestrian or not? Or how fast are they working or not? And you can do a second stage, which is called an introspective network that basically asks the network, now, why do you think that, <laughs> right? Like, why do you think it's this versus that versus all the other things that you could have said? And you can use that introspection to improve the original prediction by using it to weed out sort of, um, you know, there's that the classic adversarial thing where like you put some tape on a stop sign and it doesn't get recognized as a stop sign or something like that. So if you ask the network, well, why do you think this was a stop sign? Or why did, why did you decide this wasn't a stop sign? And if the introspection network says, well, there's some tape here, <laughs> right? That the introspection network can basically catch errors that, that the original network, uh, that the first stage, doesn't get simply from the training data by kind of evaluating it against a different set of criteria. So now one of the things that makes me think that that might not be the kind of second stage that they're using is they talked about it reducing the latency, which you could get with an introspection network if it allowed you to make the primary stage a lot smaller. Like maybe you get so much accuracy improvement from having the second stage mm -hmm. that now you make the first stage a lot smaller and overall the system gets a lot faster. But um, the simple version of that would always get a little bit, like it would get better, but it would get slower. There are other kinds of two-stage things too. Like for instance, there's another kind of two-stage where you have two or three different ways that, of evaluating something to get an answer. And each, each one has different benefits and drawbacks. And so one of the ways of going at a problem that has that kind of characteristics is you build three different, three different models, which are called experts. And then you have another second stage that sits on it that decides based on what it sees, which expert to trust, right? So that's another kind of two stage. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know which of these that it is. What, they, what it does tell us is they had these networks, the VRU velocity network and the non-VRU attribute network that they re-architected with a new approach and they got significant improvements in either 
you know, in either the accuracy or in the latency. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, fifth point says uh, reformulated the autoregressive vector lanes grammar to improve precision of lanes by 9.2%, recall of lanes by 18.7%, and recall of forks by 51.1%. Includes a full network update where all components were retrained with 3.8 times the amount of data. All right. What's what's an, what's this uh, autoregressive vector lanes grammar? Yeah. So this is the the language of lanes thing that we saw mm. at AI Day, right? So they they had this uh, clever idea for um, trying to understand uh, the connectivity of an intersection. Uh, and they, intersections were what they call that. And it may be that they use it in situations that aren't intersections too, but um, in where uh, they, they found a way to frame it as a sequence problem, which they described with a grammar and that where the grammar is just basically, you know, you have, you have, you have elements that kind of function like words or, or whatnot, and you turn the description of the, of the, of the intersection or the lane connectivity into a sequence problem. And now you can use a transformer, you know, a, a language model core thing, and you can train it like a language model, which is pretty well understood. So they've, they, they, they had been doing this already that in the, in the more recent version. So what they're basically saying is they changed the grammar <laughs> For their, their, you know, they can't. They they sort of made this little synthetic language that describes how uh, the different ways you could traverse a net, uh, an intersection, um, sort of collect collectively describe the connectivity of that intersection, and uh, uh, it's you know, uh, there are certain kinds of intersections that make sense and certain kinds of intersections that don't make sense, and uh, and so what the what doing the problem this way does is it gives you a pretty straightforward way to put what you think, you know, the sensors can like look at the road and say, this is, you know, they, they take the connectivity that they think they're seeing, they phrase it in the grammar that, that Tesla made up for this problem. They run it through the language model and the language model corrects the grammar errors at the back end. And so the understanding you get of the, of the shape of the intersection, like how it's all connected together is more accurate. So there, there were particular problems that, that they were having that, uh, that Ashok, you know, discussed after that part of the presentation that, that this approach solves. So uh, this is a still, you know, it's a new approach. It's a clever adaptation of technology that was made for a different purpose. So unsurprisingly, they're discovering ways they can tweak it to improve it. And so this, this uh, the vector lanes grammar will be the way that they they take the connectivity of an intersection and encode it into a, a sequence description, they change the way that they did this in some significant way that they don't mention here, and then they retrain the whole system. They basically probably you know you could imagine they're looking at the thing and it's working pretty well, and they find this certain situation it's not working very well in, and they look at it someone they're saying ah you know there's this word that we have in our grammar and it's ambiguous in this really important way. And the only way to fix it is to add another word that disambiguates it, right? Mm. So they add that, but now you have to go back, you know, and reformulate all of your data that way. So instead what Tesla does is they go out and they gather a bunch more data, they encode it in the new grammar and they push it through their new thing and it fixes a problem and they get better results. Got it. Um... So I'm wondering if, if this might help this one problem I have. So I'm driving in Austin and this happens to me quite frequently. I'm, 
in a two lane left kind of turn area and I'm on the outer lane, I'm going into, I'm turning left onto a street, but the street actually has three lanes I'm turning into. The leftmost lane is a, is a left turn lane and then there's mm -hmm. two lanes. I should go right into this outer lane, but it, mm -hmm. it actually, when it, it goes around and it doesn't go into the outer lane, it goes into the middle lane. Mm -hmm. um, often and so do you think and then you don't have enough time to do the lane change to make your next turn right yeah well i have to it's, yeah. it's kind of dangerous because there might be a car that's that right. that needs that lane because i'm on the outer lane so okay um, so yeah. here's how you would apply this to that problem yeah. right your car's approaching the network your car's approaching the intersection now it has some map data that says some things right but the map data might not include oh there are three lanes on this road exiting mm -hmm. the intersection because mm -hmm. like i've noticed looking at the stuff that some map data includes the number of lanes accurately to every intersection. Most map data doesn't include that level of detail, right? So as the car's approaching the intersection, what does the camera see? Well, it sees, you know, the lane that you're in, it sees the shape of the, of the intersection. Cause you're making, you see, you described yourself making a right turn, right? Or left, so you're making left, yeah. a right turn. Is a left turn. Oh, so you're yeah. making a left turn. Yeah. But you're making a left and then you want to get in the left lane. No, no, I just, I'm just, I'm in a, it's a uh -huh. two a two lane left turn thing, and I'm on the right. outer lane. I'm turning left. I just right. want to stay in my lane and keep on the right. outer lane, but it doesn't. Uh -huh. It goes into the middle lane because it's a. I'm turning into a so three. It, so it moves one lane out instead of staying in its lane. Yeah, it because into... because there's a left turn lane. Like I'm there's three lanes that I'm turning into or a mm -hmm. street, and it it doesn't keep that outer lane for me for some reason. Yeah. Okay. Well, let me just, I'll describe it more generally Yeah. The, because the car always has a limited field of view and you're kind of, especially as you're approaching intersection, you're kind of looking mm -hmm. at it edge on, like yeah. you see this pavement kind of edge on because you're mm -hmm. looking at it from a distance and you see these markings, right. And the, and the system, the, the, previous way of doing this without the without this lane to this uh, language of lanes network yeah. uh, it would look at this thing and it would try to map it in the vision space like it would try to say oh this must be a lane and this must be a lane and this must be a lane and sometimes you get ambiguity like the road crest or there's a bush blocking the thing and it's not totally clear is there two lanes there or are there three lanes there or does this lane is this lane allowed to turn left or whatnot? As a human frequently approaching an intersection, even if you can't see that, you know it must be there, right? Because mm -hmm. you know something else about the thing, like, oh, there are three lanes coming in the net in the intersection. There must be three going out. Or, yeah, you know, yeah. that's a simple one. But there can also be like, you know, if there are two lanes, you know, if there are two left turn lanes, you know, there are going to be two left turn lanes coming in the intersection and two left turns lane. And, it, you know, the inner one will never be able to cross the outer one in the left. Now, the, you know, the outer mm -hmm. one might be able to go straight or might not, right? If you're just looking at the road markings and you're trying to figure that stuff out, the space of possibilities is a lot larger. But if you, tr if you describe it in terms of what are legal, like what are legitimate ways to go through the intersection, the space of possibilities is a lot smaller. So, so... What that allows the, the vehicle to do is it can tell what the, what the nature of the intersection is when it's farther away or when it's only partway through a turn, right? It doesn't have to, you know, finish its turn, get completely set up, see all the lanes around it, like, oh, I'm in the wrong lane, at which point you're already half a block yeah. down the road, right? It, it's yeah. going to see the right answer sooner and faster as the situation around the car changes. And what that leads to is just making fewer mistakes because yeah. you have more time to respond 
to and more time to plan what you're going to do because you you see the answer quicker. And so the language of Langston, it's just a way of basically trying to describe all possible valid intersections in a concise form that that the vision system can try to express so it can check like this thing I'm seeing, it does it make sense or because humans do that. I mean, we know you know, there's certain things that make sense in an intersection and it don't. And because we have that sensibility, as we approach an intersection, we can make better, you know, guesses about the things we can't see. And up until now, the car hasn't been able to do that very well. And by doing this, they're giving it that capability. And so this improvement is just improving that capability. They found a flaw in it and they addressed it by these, these changes that they're describing here. Yeah. Um, all right, six uh, point in the uh, in the release notes added a new road markings module to the vector lanes neural network, which improves lane topology error at intersections by thirty eight point nine percent. So, what are what's a road markings uh, mo module here? My guess is they is they they either added something that they well this kind of makes it sound like they added um, an architectural feature to the neural network. It's also another possible interpretation is that they added a new label, which eh, they probably would have labeled, said that old. But in, in any case, they're now uh, they're they're taking a different look at the road markings that they see in an intersection in order to interpret what the connectivity of the intersection is. Is how I take this. Okay, got it. Uh, seventh uh, upgraded the occupancy network to align with road surface instead of ego for improved detection stability and improved recall at Hillcrest. Yeah, this is a pretty this is a pretty big change. So the occupancy network right now, you know, if you've seen the pictures, you know, it's it's kind of like this, you know, Lego world that gets mm -hmm. stacked up. It's like everything that I don't know what it is, but space that's occupied. I'm going to describe it as these little cubes around the vehicle that are either filled or not filled. And OK, so right now, if you if you look at at the occupancy network, like when the car turns a corner, goes over a hill or whatever the deal is, those Legos, they stay aligned with the vehicle, which means that when the car's attitude is changing, whether it, you know, if, like for instance, if the car is going over a hill, what happens is the whole occupancy network, because it's aligned to the car, it has to shift and stay valid. And what that means is there's lots and lots of updates. Like the, the occupancy network, if it's aligned to the car, then when you turn, the whole grid shifts, which means each individual frame as you turn is kind of, it's much harder to say what that should be based on what the previous one was. Now, what you'd like is you'd like the grid ideally to be a fixed feature of the world that the car moves through. So that each frame it gets, even as the car's attitude is changing, it's like, you know, you, you have the fire hydrant and it's, it's made out of a bunch of Legos right over on the corner. And it's the same set of Legos in each subsequent frame, right? So that, so that each of those frames is building your confidence that you understand it's a fire hydrant and it's in that location. If the if the grid shifts with the car, then then the fire hydrant is changing, you know, where it is as you move around. Okay. So they're not dealing with the car rotating laterally. They're dealing with the car cresting a hill or whatnot. So what they've done is instead of having the Lego blocks line up with the car, they line up with level with the road surface, mm -hmm. right? So, so the Lego blocks don't change as you crest a hill and uh, cresting a hill is a super important situation because it's one of those situations where 
you can't see what's right in front of the car. Like what's right in front of the car is really important for the decisions that you're going to make. Like if you're cresting a hill and it's turning, right? Well, all of a sudden there's stuff in front of your car that wasn't and your path has to change and whatnot. So cresting a hill is one of those times when suddenly you learn a whole lot of stuff just as you crest the hill that's super important and you need to bring all that stuff in. It doesn't have any history. So you'd like your, um, your predictions and your understanding to not change any more than necessary as you crest. So what they've done here is specifically uh, they've changed the grid network so that it doesn't, so that the attitude of the car doesn't affect it. The car can move through it and it can be stable with the world around it. Does that make Got sense? It. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, eighth uh, update is reduced runtime of candidate trajectory generation by approximately 80% and improved smoothness by distilling an expensive trajectory optimization procedure into a lightweight planner neural network. All right, what's going on? Yeah, here? so this is pretty brilliant. Um, so distillation is a way of taking a big neural network and making a small neural network that's just as good as the big neural network. And the, the thing that you win from that is frequently, if you want to train a neural network to do something complicated, frequently the training process itself requires a network to be pretty big because you're training it from raw data. But then you get this thing where like, I have this big neural network and it works, but I'd like a smaller one that works just as well. And you can do this thing where you have the big network teach a small neural network to get all the same answers. Right. So you do a second pass where you train a second neural network. And, and what it does is you don't train it on the data the big one was trained on. It doesn't need all that and it doesn't have to consider all the possibilities. The big neural network has already learned what it needs to know to do this problem. And so, and so basically what you do is you train the small neural network off the big one. So this process is called distillation or knowledge distillation because you're, you're basically the, the idea is that you build a neural network and it's a certain size. And part of the size is the bigger it is, the faster it learns, right? But once it's learned, it's what it needs to learn. A whole lot of that bigness is no longer necessary because it's not learning anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So distillation is this process where you distill out what it learns and you get rid of the part that it needed to learn it, but which isn't actually relevant to the answer it figured out. Okay. And, uh, and, and essentially the way you do that is you take a small neural network and you train it off the big neural network to do this thing. Now, they've actually gone a little bit farther than this. They had a process that had multiple neural networks and uh, they had, uh, had multiple neural networks, more than one, and it also had some heuristic code baked into it. Now, the result of all this is that you, you put a, you, you, you ask a question and then the heuristic runs through a set of possibilities and uses a neural network to do these intermediate evaluations. But at the end of the day, it gives you an answer. So they didn't just take a big neural network, but they took a neural network with this other stuff in and they ran the distillation process to convert that whole thing into just a neural network. So it became much lighter and much faster. Got it. Yeah. Um... So what is this candidate trajectory generation? Is it just a different place? Is it a more of a planning module of like w what trajectory to take as for the car yeah, so or is it? You know, the intentical when you're, you're driving the car and yeah. you have the blue wiggly line that sticks out the front. Yeah. So that thing, so it's showing you the number one candidate, uh, candidate mm. trajectory as you're going along, right? Got now, it. the neural network, it, it only shows you the number one candidate. But it also has two, three, four, five, six. You know, it'll have and uh, 
So when you see the, you know, that blue line wiggling around a lot, it's because number one and number two are pretty close. Mm -hmm. And as they switch locations, it shows you a different one. So you see the line flipping back and forth, but there's actually, there might be 10 candidates or 50 candidates or something, mm -hmm. depending on the situation you're like, if you want to make a lane change and there's moving cars and you're trying to predict what they're all doing, you know, you could change now slowly, you could speed up and move there. Like there's all these different trajectories you could potentially do. And one of the first things that you want to do is, is generate a set of good candidates that you can subsequently evaluate to decide what the best one is. Mm -hmm. So apparently what this thing is doing is it's taking that module, which previously was a neural network and some heuristic code yeah. to generate these candidates. And instead what it's done is it's distilled it down to a one shot neural network that just basically looks at it and goes, boom, here are your candidates. Right. Got it. I mean, this is, I mean, it sounds like a big deal because 80% reducing runtime. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a big, I mean, that's a lot of, that's stuff this you can use for other things too, you know? engineers live for, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's great to like find something that's like, wow, I made it 10 times better. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. This is like a five X improvement in speed, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing. They're always, you know, looking for, you know, like there's such there's limited amount of resources to run right in the car so if you can save 80 percent runtime it's like it opens yeah. up you know a, a lot of other you know, processes. You, know you can yeah. add more other stuff exactly you can yeah. add um ninth update here is improved decision making for short deadline lane changes around gores by richer modeling of the trade-off between going off route versus trajectory required to drive through the gore region what does this mean here yeah so that's pretty interesting. So we haven't seen them talk about going off route before. So I okay, the way I'm taking this is, you know, you have a route and sometimes you can't make the turn, right? You know, yeah. for instance, you know, uh, in, in your example before, you know, you want to make that left turn at the intersection you're coming up to, but if you're going to make the left turn, you know, you got to do the lane change and then you get to make the left turn. And the downside of not doing that is now I'm going to have to route. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. have to go around the block or whatever the deal is. Yeah. So uh gore so this is a pretty common problem around gores right so it, it when you have limited time to make maneuvers on a lot of highways you have gore zones that are drawn now the the gore zone it you could cross a gore zone right to to make your turn um it's not actually an obstacle there might be some junk or some debris or whatnot because it's not a road surface that people drive on a lot but it's not like a hard obstacle like you're not going to get into a crash if you cross a gore zone and a lot of gore zones are they're sort of gratuitously long like a, you know a lot of times when you come to a freeway exit ramp there might be a little gore zone but then they have this really long straight solid white line right and if you've noticed the car doesn't like to cross the solid white line because that's part of the gore zone Right. Mm -hmm. And as a human, you're like, why aren't you crossing the line? I'm going to miss my turn. Right. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, so now. Um, it, so apparently the system before didn't consider, well, what if I don't make the turn like that mm -hmm. wasn't part of the thing. And now it's like, oh, man, if I miss this turn, I got to go five miles before I got another exit. Right. And so it's going to take that into account. And when it decides like whether to cross the gore or not. Right. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. That's like pretty advanced stuff. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, like the, mm. you know, there are good reasons to not cross a gore. Like just in general, yeah. if if your rule is ignore the gore zones or never, ever, ever cross the, the gore zones, you're going to go with option B, right? Because that's yeah. going to be safer. But human beings, 
you know, you frequently, you drive in LA, you mm -hmm. frequently are going to have to cross a gore zone or you're going to miss your turn because yeah. that's just the dynamics of the traffic. It's really hard to avoid those kinds of situations. Yeah. And so at some point the car has to start entertaining, yeah. like, okay, uh, you know, this is a good, I, this is a good place to, to cross the gore zone or, you know, this is a gore zone that would be okay. Like they, depending on the gore zone and depending on the situation that you're in, you know, it may or may not be a good idea to do that. And one of the criteria for making that decision is well, what happens if I don't, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And one, one component of that is, well, how, you know, how much longer is my route going to get it? You know, it's funny. I, uh, I do a thing when I drive FSD where, like my general thing is like, I let the car do, because I want to see what the results of, of what it does is. Mm -hmm. And I, there have been a whole bunch of times where, you know, the car was trying to get off the highway and mm -hmm. it couldn't get, you know, it couldn't make the exit or whatever the deal was, but the resulting route is actually shorter than the route I was going to take, right? Like, you know, mm -hmm. Google calculated it and it went this way. And it turns out that once you, once you pass that, you can get off at the next exit and approach the destination from the behind. And it's actually easier. Right. So a lot of times missing your turn doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah. And in that case, you don't want to cross a gore zone because it's not getting you anything. Right. You don't want to try to squeeze in between two cars that are tight. Yeah. You don't want to take any risk at all if you don't get anything for it. But there are other times where you miss that. Oh, now you got to go down to the 57 and do the clover leaf and come all the way back, you know, yeah, and it's going to yeah. cost you 10 minutes. And so at least taking that into consideration when you decide how much risk, how aggressive you want to be is a, is a useful component to contribute to this. Yeah. I mean, this is an interesting update because, um, it seems like prior, like Tesla saying, Hey, you know, stick with the rules, basically, you know, stick between the lanes and do all this stuff. But this is, this is saying that they've progressed to this point where, um, there's, they're tackling problems where sometimes bending the rules or, you know, um, going outside the lanes is actually better or safer, or smarter. And they're trying to figure out when those cases are. So it's really expanding. It seems like, um, the scope of, you know, how FSD beta, you know, handles driving. This is also like my general sense of the priority priorities are like, what can we address in this next update? that will solve the most real problems that people encounter, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, incidentally, as a sideline to that, a lot fewer of the things that they're focusing on are, oh my God, we have to get this right or there will be a crash. Like they're not, you know, they're, we used to see a lot of things that were like pretty safety critical, like the accuracy of the, you know, vehicle detection isn't good enough, make it 5% better, make it 10% better, make it 30% better. And we saw that over and over again. And now we're seeing a little bit less of that. And we're seeing more of the effort go into these much, somewhat more complicated problems that are arguably about convenience or having a good experience, like not having a lot of jerk when mm -hmm. you do an unprotected left turn is a lower priority than just doing it safely, right? So when they get to the point where they're like, doing where they're focusing on doing it smoothly they're one of the things you, that we're learning is okay they're getting to where they're kind of satisfied with the safety right and now they can yeah. start looking at other things yeah makes sense a tenth update is reduced false slowdowns for pedestrians near crosswalk by using a better model for the kin kinematics of the pedestrian that makes yeah. sense. So this was, yeah. we heard a lot of complaints about um, how, which incidentally I never experienced myself, but mm. I live on a road where there are no sidewalks and people like to go walking in the morning. And so my car like goes through pedestrians, you know, every morning when I, if I go someplace mm -hmm. uh, and I haven't really seen a pro lot of problems with pedestrians, but a lot of people have complained quite a bit about the via about, you know, um, 
uh, FSD either not stopping when it should because it's not predicting or or a lot more complaints that were it's too conservative. You know, it's stopping mm-hmm. in the middle of the intersection for this woman who's clearly not trying to cross the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So by improving your model of 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 uh, predicting what a pedestrian's intention is, then you're going to reduce those number. And so that was the, the they described it as an unnatural uh, unnatural slowdown. Uh, False slowdown. False slowdown. Yeah. yeah. So the, where, you know, this happened to me the other day that I'm going through an intersection and there's a guy riding a bicycle up to the mm. intersection and, you know, my car comes to a stop. It's pretty clear to me as a human being, because what what the guy on the bike is doing is he's riding on the sidewalk and he wants to ride up to the crosswalk. He want, He's going to turn and go in the same direction that I'm going. He wants to cross the street. But first he has to get to the crosswalk button because he wants to press that button. Mm. Right. Well, I can see his him rotating the bicycle, you know, because he, you know, you can't reach the button from the, you know, if your front wheel is against the bike, you got to come up alongside the pole. So as a human, I see him and it's pretty obvious, like he's turning his bicycle because he wants to push the button and I know he's not going to cross my path. But what the car sees is it's just looking at this guy's vector and it sees it coming right up to the curb, right? Because that's, that's where the pole is. The pole is right at the curb. So the car stops, which if all you know about the bike is like, where's the, you know, where is the driver's or where's the rider's head? And is it going to cross my path in the, or might it cross my path? Well, then you stop. So having this better kinematics model, you say, oh, he's, his path is shifting or he's facing a different direction. He's rotating, right? Yeah. And so now I don't have to stop because the, you know, the car can be confident that, that, the, that if you extend the arc of his trajectory, it won't cross our path. Yeah, makes sense. Um, it seems like some of this stuff, longer term, I could imagine you know, the neural networks basically looking at the face of the pedestrian yeah. or the biker. Oh, seeing where they're looking, the expression on their yeah. face, just different things that, you know, and even maybe in faces and people, uh, people in cars or something driving, but like, it, it seems like something you could train the neural networks fairly, oh, you yeah. know, quickly, no, especially if you have millions like and that, millions of data points, right? That is totally, I don't want to say it's a solved problem. It's a problem mm-hmm. that we know how to do. And like, yeah. for example, pose, esti- pose estimation is where you take a picture or a video of a human being and you, and you basically say, where are the arms and legs and how are they moving in time, right? Because from, from the pose estimation, you can say a lot of things, especially if you watch it evolve. You know, they're walking, they're walking with this person, they're looking down, you know, you get, there's all this stuff that you get from the body language. And there are really good neural networks out there that can just basically look at video people and, and do really good pose extraction. Yeah. And from yeah. the pose, from the pose, you can determine a lot of better intent. Okay, so why isn't Tesla doing this right now? Because they haven't gotten to it. Yeah, right? exactly. Like yeah. it hasn't, it hasn't yeah, made yeah. a cut. So yeah. they will. There's, you know, that or something equivalent will happen. The whole, the, the other thing about gaze estimation, uh, like. You know, anybody who owns an iPhone with Face ID knows that computers can do gaze estimation really well. Yeah. You don't look at your phone, it doesn't unlock. Um, mm-hmm. And it, this is not, it's not a, some special magic trick that you can only do at 12 inches. You know, a computer can tell from as far away as you can identify a human face, whether it's looking at you or not. Yeah. Like that is not like some fundamental research problem. We totally know how to do that. Yeah. But you don't add it to the car until it gets on the list of things that you need to solve to continue improving yeah. the experience. So as long as there are other things that are more important, you don't get to it. Yeah, I mean, I could see eventually, like, you know, because the car has 
super processing power, you can look at multiple pedestrians across, you know, multiple、mm-hmm. views and go see their expressions, their movements, and be able to predict pedestrians' movements much better than a human could when humans are isolated just mostly to one, you know, view, one angle. It just、It、seems like, we, yeah, yeah, it seems to be much better. It's, I mean, for one thing,、uh, Humans are pretty easily distracted by other people. All right. Like, you can be, if, if you're, you know, you, you pull up to the intersection and, and there's a funny looking guy in a costume over here, right? And now you're not looking at the person who's in the way of your, of your right hand turn or whatever. Or there's a pretty girl or there's, you know, a cute, you know,、uh, set of school kids, you know, coming with their nice little uniforms or whatever the deal is. Like, Looking at human beings is actually a weakness of humans because、mm-hmm. they're, we, we don't focus on what's really important in that situation.、Mm-hmm. All right, James, a slight digression here. So I had this、uh, idea, a business idea. I was like,、mm-hmm. you know, I'm taking out my dog to go pee. He's like 13 or 14 years old. He's a small dog, like four pounds.、So、he has a small bladder. He, I'm having to take him out like five times in the morning and just like throughout the day. Just, it's just crazy. I was thinking, Could we? I mean, if we invent a device, you stick it on the dog, right? And basically use AI to track, you know, dogs, the dogs' movements, but also all, all dogs. And you can detect when they need to go pee.、Um, I guess you'd have to have some result of like, you know, inputting some accidents or whatever. But you could see that the changes of their body movement when they're trying to, you know, like, you know, they're. Getting, and then you can alert the owner that the dog needs to go pee at the right time. I mean, that seems like, you, you know, yeah. I mean, what, if if you can look、that? at your dog and tell, like if, if、yeah. he's got body language or movement and that, that, that kind of stuff, which is for you a tell, there's probably a pretty good chance that a neural、yeah. network would be trained to do it. Now, a, an interesting question is like, are those tells, are they common across all dogs? You know, so that you can gather lots of data and make a product and sell it to more than one person, right? That, yeah. Sure. It's so like I recently, Apple just recently added the sleep monitoring thing to the, to which, like, if you don't use it, like, I really recommend it. It's been really interesting.、Um, yeah. It can tell, like, it, if you're deeply asleep, if you're dreaming, if you're, if you wake up, you know, it's got these different stages and it monitors、uh, the thing throughout the night and it helps you, like, develop habits so that you sleep better at night.、Yeah. So, you know, the watch can tell if I'm dreaming or not. <laughs> Right. It's really good. Like, I don't know what the algorithm, like, I, it, you know, it, it's going to be some combination of how you're moving around, how fast your respiration、yeah. is, because it can figure out that kind of stuff, maybe what your heart rate is. But, you know, if they can slap a watch on people and tell if they're dreaming as opposed to lying there awake, staring, staring at the ceiling, right? Which is the other option. Yeah. yeah.、Um, like, that's pretty subtle. So I imagine、yeah. the dog thing is probably not so subtle. Yeah. Yeah.、Um, all right. 11th update here is added control for more precise object geometry as detected by general occupancy network. It's a little vague, right? I mean, control for more precise object yeah, geometry. The, the, the insertion of the word control there is a little, is a little bit interesting. I mean, the、yeah. rest of the, of the thing seems to suggest that they are,、um, that they, and you know, precision is also kind of interesting because when you talk about the occupancy network, precision is a, is a function of how fine the network is, like how small the boxes、yeah. are. I mean, could、so、it be like、that? One, one way of reading this is they're adding some small boxes close to the car. 
Mm, okay. I mean, could it be that it's, um, it's more the, the second pass where, you know, you have the occupancy network, but then you're focusing on certain parts of it for more precise, you know, job, oh, you know, we might be reading this slightly. There's another reading, which is they added control for the more precise object geometry as detected by the general occupancy network, which the way you would read that is like, yeah. oh, they're getting this more precise geometry. And now they want to take advantage of it by changing the vehicle because control is vehicle control decision, you know, planning or whatnot. Yeah, so, okay. so basically this might be, you know, oh, we're getting, we're getting better estimates of like where the, where the, um, you know, the tree is adjacent to the road that sticks out, or we're getting better data on this kind of stuff, but we hadn't up until now taken advantage of it by changing the control algorithm to respond to that. So that might be what they're saying. This is a little vaguely worded. No problem. Uh, I would number, probably go with that interpretation right now. Got it. Number 12, improved control for vehicles cutting out of our desired path by better, better modeling of their turning lateral move maneuvers, thus avoiding unnatural slowdowns. Yeah. So <laughs> this will be really nice to have. So, you know, if you're if FSD, you're, you know, you're, you're driving downtown and somebody pulls out of you because they're going to turn into the grocery store and they slowly wander out of your lane or whatever the deal is. And your car comes to a halt instead of like, so the car's gotten a lot better because it now has offsetting behavior. It used to be, it wouldn't change out of its lane. So, you know, if, you know, if grandma is making a left turn and the back of her SUV is sticking two feet into your lane, the car it, for a long time, it wouldn't like move over and just go around grandma, even if the other lane was there. Well, now it'll do that. It's been doing the offset thing, but you can do even better on that by basically doing better trajectory uh, prediction about what the, about what's going on. Like understanding that based on the way that the vehicle is rotating, it is actually going to make a left turn. It's not just pulling in. It's not just pulling off the lane and it might pull back in or whatnot. Mm, got it. Okay. That makes sense. So that gives them more confidence to be able to not slow down in situations which previously would have been ambiguous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's like some of these updates. It's they're they're important updates that really improve like certain cases, but they they are the yeah. this, the, this I hit all, all the time. Yeah, like there, there's a road I drive on all the time wh where you know you're driving down this shopping district and it has one of those. Um, you know, those uh, double dotted yellow sort of left turn lanes that you can pull into so that you can mm -hmm. pull into driveways. And a lot of people just, you know, they pull, they kind of pull halfway into it because if you're a human being, you just drive around the back end of the car and it's not really mm -hmm. a big deal. But up until now, you know, FSD hasn't been happy about, do about you know sort of cutting corners and going close in those kinds of situations yeah. and it's gotten better like it's they've added behaviors and predictions where i get fewer of those than i used to but they it still does happen sometimes so i'm anticipating that this will reduce the number of times that my car stops uh mm -hmm. when it doesn't need to yeah that's gonna be big 13 um improved longitudinal control while, while offsetting around static obstacles by searching over feasible vehicle motion profiles yeah. So an interesting question is whether they're talking about the vehicle motion. Oh, feasible vehicle. Yeah. Feasible vehicle motion profiles. It could refer to the alter, the other vehicle. Oh, no, this is static objects. Okay. So, uh, so basically longitudinal control is acceleration and braking. Okay. And, uh, so basically they're getting smoother 
uh, acceleration or braking while they're offsetting around static obstacles. So a static obstacle is like, and you're driving through a pedestrian crosswalk and it's one of those ones that has a pole, you know, that warns you that it's a pedestrian crosswalk and that your car has to move slightly around it, or maybe it's a cone in the road or something like that. And so instead of just having a rule, like in this mm -hmm. case, I can go this fast. Instead, what it does is it looks at the trajectories and it sees what a reasonable velocity is for the alternate yeah. trajectories around that object with the goal of not slowing down if you don't need to. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. Um, number 14, improved longitudinal control smoothness for in-lane vehicles during high relative velocity scenarios by also considering relative acceleration in the trajectory optimization. Yeah. So apparently up until now, I'm, this is, I'm a little surprised that they weren't considering acceleration. So, you know, when you are uh, maneuvering relative to another vehicle in lane, you know, that your rel your position, your positions matter and your relative velocity matters. But another thing that matters is whether that relative velocity is increasing or decreasing, whether it's changing. Right. So for instance, you, uh, you, you know, you pull it, you, you're, you're in a lane and you're, you're gaining on the guy ahead of you. Like maybe some, maybe you're driving along and somebody has pulled into your lane. Like this would be yeah. a canonical example, you know, and they start accelerating away. Right. So initially they pull in front of you and the car see, you know, the, the FSD sees that they've pulled in front of you and looks at your velocity and looks at their velocity and says, oh, I'm closing on them. And then it's like, I better slow down, right. To reduce yeah. that kind of stuff without taking into account, oh, they're accelerating hard. Like you don't need to slow down as much as you would have to. So apparently now they're going to take that acceleration into account also when they decide like in that situation, how much braking you need to do mm. to maintain a safe distance. Mm. Interesting. That makes sense. Um, number 15 and the last update, reduced best case object photon to control system latency by 26% through adaptive planner scheduling, restructuring of trajectory selection, and paralyzing perception compute. This allows us to make quicker decisions and improve reaction time. Yeah, so this is a basket of optimizations that they yeah. have done to basically reduce latency, right? And give themselves more time to make decisions or be able to make decisions faster. So mm -hmm. um, so the adaptive planner scheduling. So the the uh, the auto uh, FSD itself is about a hundred different tasks. And each the tap uh, uh, where each task has an input and it does a certain amount of processing and it produces an output and that output might be used by some downstream thing to make a decision or okay so uh there they use an adaptive uh algorithm that basically schedules these tasks so that um so that you know the the um downstream tasks run when their inputs are available and soon enough that you get their output in time to make the decision that you need that you need to make so there are some tasks that take variable amounts of time and different tasks have different priorities. So apparently what they've done is they've gone to an adaptive planner scheduling that takes into account, like, what do I need to know in the next 10 milliseconds? And then, and, and, and essentially rearranging the schedule in order to be, to be able to get that understanding that some kinds of, of, uh, that some that, that, that some kinds of these planning tasks can vary a lot in terms of the amount of time. It looked like they weren't taking that into account before. So then they re restructuring of trajectory selection. So this is previously, they told us that they made this big change to tra uh, trajectory to, you know, the trajectory candidate generation process that reduced the 
the uh, the the uh, the compute and latency on that by eighty percent. Um, so this may be a downstream consequence of that. It's like, oh, we got this thing now. Let's take advantage of it, um, and then parallelizing perception compute. So, uh, so parallelizing stuff typically means that and that where you used to have something that was a block that you know the of code that was connected together, and you did A, B, and C. Parallelization is a process of like breaking it into pieces that can that if they don't have dependencies, they can run simultaneously on different things. So this might be um, splitting things, you know, so inside the, inside the FSD chip, there are two neural network compute units, and there are also a bunch of cores and a bunch of GPUs. So depending on what resources you're, you're using, you can run multiple of these things at the same time in a non-contentious fashion. And there's also two chips, right? So you could decide you're going to run part of it on this, you know, you could break something up into pieces, run part of each of it on two different chips and get your answer sooner rather mm. than having Got to it. wait. All right. Makes sense, man. This, um, this update actually feels like a pretty chunky update. I mean, for a 10.69.3 update, it feels like it deserves its own, you know, 10.7, well, yeah, 10.8. Elon was cracking that it's yeah. really, um, that, the dot three was not really a, a point update. It was really a major update. Yeah. And it does, it does kind of seem that way. I mean, it's a lot of these, just, just looking at the text, a lot of these, you know, uh, changes like in terms of, in terms of results and the effort that it take to do them is, is, you know, it's kind of on the scale of what we saw with 10.69 when we, when we first got it, there were a couple of things we got in 10.69, which felt really big, but this has also got a number of biggies in here. Yeah. Uh, I also, I like the fact that, you know, a lot of the previous updates we got, it would say, oh, we got a 40% improvement in that, or we got a 30% mm -hmm. improvement on that. But because there's a hundred outputs and because the way the accuracies interact with one another can be kind of hard to understand how it's going to impact your experience. You know, you start driving the car and did it get better? I'm not sure. <laughs> what situation was it going to get better? And accuracy is that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like it does affect a lot of stuff and it is really important but you just kind of got to drive in and see if it like feels better than the previous one did. Whereas these, they're a lot more concrete, you know, like I'm definitely, when I'm driving down Foothill Boulevard, you know, I'm going to watch for that left turn pull out thing. And I'm, yeah. and I'm going to be queued yeah. in to uh, see whether or not, uh, you know, going around vehicles or going around static obstacles is working better now yeah. know, in terms of the yeah. longitudinal control. Like, is it not breaking? Am I not getting as much of jerk? Is it able to make, maintain its velocity? Am I comfortable? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, yeah, this stuff is super helpful because, um, I remember a, a couple updates, a few updates before they're talking about kind of lane markings and, um, retraining, getting improvement on, on the lanes. And one of the problems I was having was out of my kind of neighborhood, <clears throat> I would take a left turn, but then there'd be, it would split the lane would split into two lanes and the car would stutter kind of like wouldn't know which lane to take. And, and then I don't know, it was weird. And, almost stop. And I noticed um, the recent updates or updates, um, it kind of solved that. It just knows which lane to go into. I think it's much more confident in, 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 in uh, detecting, you know, the lanes. So I, stuff like that. And it also, I think um, with this update, I'm looking forward to see if the, if it'll keep the lane t around the, the, the corners better, you know, like a left turn lane or something. Um, hopefully we'll see some improvements with that as well. I would like that too. Like one of, yeah. so we just did uh a five-day trip where we drove 
um, we went through Zion and we went through, we drove up Escalante, which we like in, in nice. Utah. So I had like, you know, five solid days of like watching FSD drive the car. And, uh, it, and for the most part, like it was beautiful. Like the car drove all the way through Zion. It drove all the way through Bryce. I never had any interventions and it was super comfortable. And which on that kind of thing is nice because as a driver, you're, you're there for the scenery, right? It's nice if you don't have to stare, you know, intently at the, at the car ahead of you, or if you're on a windy road, if you're pretty comfortable that the car can stay in its lane and, you know, you can actually see some of the stuff instead of being, you know, laser focused on the pavement. And, uh, and I had one critical intervention, <laughs> like I think in, in four days. And it was when the car tried to do a left turn and wanted to change lanes in the middle of the left turn, the thing that you were just describing, mm-hmm. which was, you know, and it was kind of one of those, like we, 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 we had five days and we did all this stuff. And then I come back to LA and you can't make a left. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. It's um, yeah, it's definitely fascinating to see the progress um, with each update. Um, yeah. I wanted to thank you on behalf of, probably the many people who watch um, because this stuff is immensely valuable because a lot of times I think the technical language is out of reach for a lot of people. It's just, is confusing and complicated, vague uh, for those who aren't in that field. But um, yeah, I think talking to you, it brings it down to more kind of easy to access, you know, concepts these, and ideas. These notes are, they're pretty easy to understand in general. It's, it's really rare for them to come out with notes where like you really got to be a specialist to understand what's going on. But I agree. The, um, the, the technical vocabulary is just daunting, right? If yeah, you, if yeah. you don't get exposed to it, I'll, probably most people can figure this stuff out by, you know, thinking about it and doing some Google searches, but you know, yeah. if we save them some time, then that's great. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I wish there was like a, a, a tip, a virtual tip jar for you or something. People could give tips or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. I feel like, like that almost every talk. Um, very, oh, wow. very thankful. Yeah. Awesome. Um, all right, James, I uh, wanted to, to thank you. Well, um, yeah, definitely talk again. We still need to do, I think, our last Tesla AI yeah. uh, video on the second part of FSD. So I'll, yeah, it um, starts with something. the language of lanes thing. I was thinking right. we, we, we hadn't got a chance to do that yet. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, we'll have so, to. I'd, I know you were traveling, right? So we um, I'm to... start, actually, I'm, tra- start, I'm starting to travel next week. So maybe we should actually prior to try to figure something out this week if you have time. Yeah. Uh, I'd say this week won't work for me, yeah. unfortunately. Okay. All right. Maybe. Okay. I'll talk but offline. We'll, yeah. Yeah. We'll, we'll get to it. Something some, yeah, I yeah. mean, you know, it's, it's only been a few weeks since the event. Yeah. It's not like we're super late. That's true. All right. Uh, James, take care. Have a good night. We'll see you, man. All right.